Storytime 142, maybe. I think I got the number wrong last time. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. We haven't been keeping up very well with all of the numbers, but uh, it's been a busy time, so that's understandable. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins with you from London. Time for a, a little a little bit of history, a little bit of, bit of wandering. Um, you were at the Oval, Adam, and you, you were enjoying watching Kate Cross go about her work last night as well, I saw online. Oh. I was, yes. I, I, uh, hello, Jeff. I, I'm at the Oval doing uh, the fourth day of Sorry Not, so that gives this a bit of a timestamp, Storytime 142. We've had a number of different final word listeners through the Oval gates the last three days, which has been nice, including Harry Tognetti, who, who came out from Australia, from Sydney to be precise, and was able to get to a couple of days at Leeds, and he's here for a wedding. But um, his one piece of uh, London cricket has been watching Surrey play. Uh, yesterday afternoon, which was nice. So hello to Harry and hello to everybody else who's been here. Uh, and I did get home in time to watch Kate Cross um, ramp her way to victory last night with Winnie, uh, actually. I had Winnie on my lap. We were kind of doing that bedtime avoidance thing that you're familiar with, Jeff, having seen yep. that works with Winnie, trying to um, use every lever she's got to um, avoid getting put into bed. Well, last night was the cricket and so it worked. Um, and at the end, she goes, I want to do a big hit too. I'm like, yeah, that's what it's all about. I want to do a big hit too. So, um, yes, as they always say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Well, uh, my little girl can see other women hitting cricket balls hard, and she wants to do that as well. So whether she goes on to do it, that's her her decision. But, um, yeah, I, I thought that was a nice little um, nice little part of last night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it, a truly exciting setup at the moment, the way that... That England comeback is on the cards, and the Australia the Australians are rattled. I'll tell you what, um, you know, just watching them, watching the body language after that game last night, um, they completely brushed radio interviews, just refused to do them. Which did they? You know, which is well, never a good sign. I, ne- never a good sign when it, when it, when it, when a team media manager or when a team doesn't want to talk after mm. a day's play or after losing, it, it never reflects well. So interesting. Well, that, and interesting. that was just okay. that was just from the players, you know. So Elisa Healy came out and did TV because you have to do TV because TV is the only thing that matters. But they um they all refused those who were approached to do anything else, which I think is interesting in itself. So uh, anyway, but uh, that's 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 the present, and we are here to get into a bit of cricket history. Uh, a little bit of correspondence before we do this. this. This is one for you that came in from Dom Davis who, who wrote in and said, I got married a few months ago. It was so much fun. But a few hours before my wedding, once everything was sorted and I just had to get myself ready, the anticipation got a touch overwhelming. So I put on the latest story time and had a shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that, did Dom. The, that did the trick and settled my nerves. This is totally in your wheelhouse. You are the listen to podcasts in the shower guy and also the nervous wedding guy. I was, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have had the presence of mind to have... I mean, I can't rule out having listened to a podcast in the shower the morning of the wedding. I probably did. Uh, but um, certainly not listening back to ourselves. I've, I've weaned myself off that over the years. I, I kind of listened back to segments to make sure they sounded right. But I used to listen the whole way through. I, I don't do that anymore unless I'm not on. I did listen to your Melissa story last night, though. That was very good, having um, Melissa back on, on the daily uh, from the Women's Ashes. But yeah, the, um, the idea of settling down before a wedding... Some people have a, a drink or two or three. Um, I had a 
uh, just a very small drink before the, the formalities began. But listening to story time, that's special, Dom. So thanks for taking us with you on your, your huge day. I hope it went beautifully. And uh, another message that I thought was special that came in from Jane after being at the women's test where there were a lot of meetups and so on, um, she wrote in to say, at the risk of being horribly sincere, uh, I think you know what a community you've created. But as someone who had to justify and occasionally prove her interest in cricket in the old days, the joy of spending time with fellow nerds and particularly the incredible women who follow the pod was enormous. Immediate connections, easy conversation, ridiculous diversions into very old test matches, obscure stats and lots of non-cricket nerdery. Women's tests have always been one of my favourite things, but this one felt like home. Isn't that beautiful? It's great. So, Well, first of all, love reading that. Um, Jane, I uh, took up to the SEN commentary box uh, during the uh, Lord's Test match with Glenn Kell to take a look out the window. I did that with a few different people who were there, which was a, a cool and nice thing to be able to show some of our listeners who were in close proximity to where we were at Lord's. And Jane's been a huge supporter of ours for a long time. And, and what she says there about the community, about people coming together, like that'll be the same at our live show, crude segue, but I think I should mention it. Our live show our live show on the 26th of July with Stephen Finn, um, the, the ticket link's in the show notes. We've had a lot of people join Patreon recently, which means uh, uh, they access the tickets for half price for 15 quid, which is also a nice thing that we're able to, to do for our existing community. And um, yeah, exactly what Jane says, every time I go to one of those meetups or um, beers after play or, or whatever it is or days of cricket in the outer I'm I'm um I, I feel uh I feel gratified that there is this organic thing that kind of has nothing to do with us I always come back to that point yeah. you and I being there it's neither here nor there we just host the show yep. this community sits, sits sits adjacent to the final word listenership and it has become its own beautiful thing so uh cheers Jane for sending that through and um, we'll see you again soon all right, let's do our thing. Let's get into a little bit of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, it's the game that we play with the nice people on the internet who make this show happen. They fund the show by sending in contributions that are not normal amounts of currency. They're very specific amounts. The amount relates to cricket in some way, and we have to figure out what it means. First cab, this is actually a revisit, but I liked the story um, uh, sufficiently that I wanted to get to it at the front of the show. Um, you might recall real Victor Trumper, who has been a yes. supporter for a long time, who who I, I've posited before may not be the real Victor Trumper. Um, I feel yes. doubtful about that. Unless I think I know who it is. Okay. I think I've got a pretty good idea who the real Victor Trumper is. Okay. I suspect it's the it's Victor Trumper from the Victor Trumper Cricket Board back in the day. Right. I'd be very surprised if it isn't Dave, who I met many many years later when playing a game at Clayton Districts, mm -hmm. and um, you know maybe 15 years after the board ceased to be what it was mm -hmm. in, in the glory days. But he was Victor Trumper on the Victor Trumper Cricket Board, and his nickname was just Vic. So I wouldn't be surprised given his. Um, his uh, strong interest in, mm. in the history of cricket. Uh, he's left a note for you here, Jeff. Yeah. So, so was this related to a previous place? Do you remember we were trying to identify something that had happened around the time that the Queen died? Something in the South Africa oh, yeah, yeah, Test yeah. match. Yep. Um, we, and we were we were convinced it had to do with this date. The pledge was three forty three, three dollars forty three, and um, we were looking at something to do with that date. And and RVT, as I like to think of him wrote in to say, actually, this had nothing to do with the date the pledge came in. That was just a coincidence. Um, and, and fortunately, just pointed me where I needed to go. He said, look back to Chesterfield in 1904. Now, this is what I've done. Chesterfield in 1904. This is, we're a few days away right now, actually, Adam, you love anniversaries, uh, from the 119th mm. anniversary of this match. Um, 
maybe in 2029 we can have a big celebration for the 125th, you know, if one of those bullshit numbers that you, if, if you're an England player, can, you get a special cap. Well, 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 the greatest season that was, not 93, was, um, was made 25 years later for that reason. So 125 years on from Chesterfield in 1904, I'll make the show. I'll make the show. 25, fine. <laughs> That's 25, 50, okay. You can't then go to 75 after 50. Like, you can't go to 150 <laughs> after 100. That's just the way it's like how you It's like how you publicly chipped me when I acknowledged that last week at Leeds was my 150th test that I'd attended, I which is to. not a huge deal, but, it, but I obviously had to, and that was fair enough. But um, it, it didn't feel insignificant that I've you know, rocked up at 150 of these now, which no. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to have been able to have done. It, it was pretty much, you know, the Simpsons still of the class turning around and saying, say the line, but that, say the that, line. Was, yeah. that was... That situation with your one. I, 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 I did a bang bang yesterday on commentary for similar reasons. There was two wickets in two balls. Sean Abbott was on a hat trick. Couple of bouncers had to go the bang bang, <laughs> and uh, the hat trick didn't happen because it was a first no. class match and you, you were watching. So right, exactly. nineteen oh four Chesterfield, um, and and I've, I don't think I've ever been to Chesterfield. I didn't really know it was a place. I only knew it as that brand of cigarettes that um, that had a kind of film noir sort of cool attached to them back in the day. But yeah, I, I've not I've not been there, but I have watched them play football at Wembley. Okay. I saw Chesterfield beat Swindon Town in the Johnson Paint Trophy final or whatever it was called, the Paint Cup mm. in in 2012. Um, I remember going along with the Swindon lot. Um, who I was mates with by extension of not only Victor Trumper land, but also um, uh, brief well, trips to Sirencester over the years. And yeah, I think it was Chesterfield that beat them in the final. So I, I, I know what they feel like. I know their energy, mm-hmm. but I don't know much about their place other than it being an outground for Derby. Big Chesterfield energy, BCE. Um, if Ryan Reynolds can buy a football club, what if, what if Tilda Swinton could buy them and make them Swinton Town? That'd be something. It's just a thought. Just a thought. Now let's let's get to nineteen oh four. This is um, this is a match where Essex are playing Derbyshire, and there's some familiar names if you've listened to this show in the Essex side. We've got Freddie Fane in there, uh, JWHT Douglas, Johnny won't hit today, Douglas, and Percy Perrin. And I think I think we've referenced this performance from Percy Perrin maybe a couple of years ago, back in the distant past of story time. But I, I don't know that we had the full detail. Percy Perrin comes in at first drop and just goes to town. Right, they're batting first. Um, this is the fall of Herbert Carpenter's wicket with the score on 12. In comes Percy Perrin and he makes 343 runs at first drop in 345 minutes. So a run a minute, which is the the, the, the old accepted fast standard before they counted balls faced, less than six hours all up to make 343 runs, in which time he hits 68 fours. <laughs> now, Percy Perrin played for 33 years from... A teenage when he was a teenager to into his 50s um, for Essex and he played 496 county championship games so he doesn't hold the record for most first class matches played but he does hold the record for most champo games which obviously nobody will ever catch given the way that mm. the schedule mm. works these days it'll be the record forever it's, it's a bit like that I mean I, I, I come back to it from time to time because I've been working with Andrew Sampson you know a lot uh, over the last however long. And the overall records for, for county cricket are a little bit deceptive here on this front as well as I bring up my tab on my page. So, you know, we've got... If I said to you who's made the most amount of runs in, in county cricket, you would almost certainly um, point to Jack Hobbs, right? You would just right. instinctively say Jack Hobbs, right? Gooch, but it wasn't. 
but it wasn't. It was Phil Mead who uh, who made forty six thousand runs in the county championship. Hobbs made thirty eight thousand. Mead um, played uh, more games, but yeah, scored more runs. Only played a, a handful of Test matches, seventeen Test matches, right. which. Uh, included playing in Australia in, in 28, 29, but went all the way back to before World War One. Um, but yeah, he was a absolute great for Hampshire and did play for England, the left-hander, but um, didn't get the kind of recognition of someone like Jack Hobbs, who everyone would just assume has got the most runs in county cricket. Actually, Hobbs is third, Woolley's second, mm. uh, and um, Patsy Hendren's fourth, and Herbert Sutcliffe is, is fifth, if you're wondering. That's just in the championship alone. Right. Well, I guess some of the, some of the players who played a lot of test cricket, that takes away from their... County appearances with the overlaps. Yeah, yeah so, that's right. So yeah, there's there's that someone like Gooch played so much Test cricket that he's he's mm. got you know the record for professional runs, but a lot of those are for England. Um, anyway, this is this is a fellow who who I sh- he should have gone around for another season to get 500 Champo games. Surely they could have given him four more games in April the next year, just, to, <laughs> just at the age of 53 or whatever he four was. Four more games. Four <laughs> more games. So big dude, six foot plus, heavy set. Um, just walks out there and belts the ball, basically. Never got picked for England. He was a selector at least twice for multiple years at a time, including at one point huh. while he was playing and still didn't get picked for England. So um, The Jamie Cox of his time. Yeah. Never played for Australia, but became yeah, a selector. Exactly. Um, and, and this day against Derbyshire, this is extraordinary. More extraordinary given that the next best score is Freddie Fain, who makes 68. And that's the only half century in an innings where a guy makes 343. Um Johnny won't hit today. Douglas makes 47, batting down at number nine in his his own fashion. So they make 597 runs, uh, of which our man makes 57% of the runs with his 343. Um, that's off 138 overs. So that's at four and a half runs and over. It's almost all in one day, this innings. And I'm pretty sure they're five ball overs in these games. So they're basically going at a runner ball through this um, through this innings. And then if you're wondering if, if Derbyshire is then you know tired and sad after this, they're not. They come out and make 548, also at more than four and over. A fellow called Charles Olivier, with a very fancy spelling, makes 229 in 225 minutes. So he's also going at a run a minute. <laughs> Sounds like a flatty it, to me. I'm, I'm suspecting <laughs> that might have been a relatively flat track um, for, for Percy and for Charles Olivier. But it's the same, basically the same innings, right? The other, the other opener makes, one of the openers makes 60-odd. No one else passes 50. Um, and Charles Olivier makes a huge score. 134 overs compared to 138. So they're 49 behind Derbyshire on the first innings and this is a three-day match and all this has happened by the third morning runs galore obviously going to be a draw Essex come out to bat for a second time just to have a bit of a whack around and they get bowled out for 97 they're done in 39 huh. overs wickets shared third around. innings pickle theory yeah <laughs> as um, Daniel Norcross would say Percy Perrin after 343 makes eight which is the third highest score Johnny won't hit today, makes 27 runs, batting at number nine. There's a guy called Edward Sewell who makes 41. They're the only scores in double figures. So they're all out for 97. Derbyshire has set 146 to win, and they run it down in 30 overs. They're going at five and over. They're, oh, baseball, oh, we just invented attacking cricket. Yeah, yeah, sure you did, 1904. Go and look it up. Um, Charles Olivier does it again. He makes 92, not out with a guy called William Storer at the other end, gets them there one wicket down, a three-day game in which 1,391 runs are scored, has a win by nine wickets. It's, it's, and how about how about a bloke who's made 343 being on the losing side? Yeah, 
which remains the record to this day. And, and I did go and look this up manually um, before realising I probably could have looked it up more easily. But um, it is the highest score ever made by a losing player in a first-class match. Um, Percy Perrin is, is a, a distinction that he still holds, perhaps unwanted. Um, he goes past 1,000 runs for the season during that innings. It's his highest first-class score in his career as well. And this is the best bit, 68 boundaries, right? So 68 fours he hits. And this is in the era when you don't have sixes. You do have fives. He doesn't hit a five. Charles Olivier hits one five. But 68 fours, some of which might have been sixes in, in our era. Hanif Muhammad made, uh, hit 64 fours while he was making his 499. So in an extra 156 runs, he hit fewer boundaries. If you're wondering why Hanif Muhammad got run out, he was probably just bloody exhausted. <laughs> um, celebrity racist Archie McLaren hit 62 fours in his 400-odd. Uh, made 400 odd now he's out um brian lara hit 62 fours in his 501 he also hit 10 sixes so that's the record if you count all boundaries um with bill edrich with his 52 fours and five mm. sixes is the record in a test match that's 57 boundaries but if you're going on simply fours struck in an innings in first class cricket the record to this day is still percy perrin with 68 of them Fantastic. I know our, our pals at the Great Cricketer um, often talk about the perfect day, 100 in a losing team. Uh, well, imagine a triple. Uh, Percy's done it. Percy's done it. Very good. Great place to start. Thank you, the real Victor Trumper. I'm next with 323 in the GBP, Hugh Kenny Herbert. Now, like you, Jeff, with a number like that, I went straight to triple centuries in first-class cricket because they usually come with a good story, right? Uh, and, and in the case of this number, both of the 323s were made in India in the Ranji Trophy. Um, the first is a name we know pretty well, a story that we told uh, recently, albeit not a positive one, a negative one, uh, Ajit Wadika, who was the Indian captain who was sacked after their 1974 shocker where they get pounded by... England and they don't win a game on tour That's I'm right. pretty sure and by contrast Pakistan don't lose a game on tour in the same summer of, of 74 um, but let's give him his due to balance it out so Wadika um, was playing for Mumbai against Mysore at Brandbourne in February 1967 earlier in his career he was already just playing for India by this stage and it's the Ranji final semi-final <clears throat> And it's the Ranji Trophy semi-final too, so quite a bit riding on this match. Uh, Mumbai makes 602, known as Bombay then, of course, uh, with Wadika making his 323 in 484 minutes, 40 boundaries, and they go and win by an innings. Uh, he makes 83 in the final against Rajasthan, which they draw, but they win on first innings points, which gets uh, Mumbai, Bombay, the title in would have been 66-67. Um, now, that's not far away from his finest moment which is in 1971 here at the Oval when uh, leading India to extraordinarily famous victory here um, where they were able to win on the final day a story that we've told on on this history podcast before um, and it's the first of three consecutive big series wins under Wadika's leadership they beat England at home and away and I think they also beat the Windies in that stretch Jeff I seem to recall it's Gavaskar's First series as a, as a test player yeah. where, where India are successful over there. 70, um, 71, is it, maybe? Yeah, 71, that's right. So he, he only made one test century. It feels like looking at his... Um, looking at looking at not only the numbers but the writing around him, he was a little bit like Brilliesque. He was clearly a good player and good enough to, to play for India. But as an international, he, his... His spot in the side was partially governed by the fact that he was a really strong and 
and, and strategic leader, um, which meant after the 1974 misadventure here in England, he had sort of no hope of, of keeping his team and, and no rope to work with, I suppose. Now, the second 323 uh, was um, Devan Gandhi uh, for Bengal against Assam. Now, this was a Ranji Trophy game that started on Christmas Day in 1998. Very mm. recently, we were talking about first-class games on, on Christmas Day. This fits into that category. Um, Assam made 168, then Bengal made 628. Now, man, Gandhi... Um, 323 from 454 balls with 33 fours and six sixes in the team with Rowan Gavaska. Um, and I suppose the fact that he batted so well at that point informed why he was picked for the Australian tour in 99-2000. Of course, and, and as I remember from when we made the, uh, uh, the Final Frontier documentary, he, he missed out both innings at Adelaide and was, was dropped never to be seen again in Test cricket. Um, but on the way through... Um, I, I just wanted to, after acknowledging there have been a couple of 323s, um, th- there's a better story than all of that. Um, and I know it doesn't quite meet the criteria we've set before, but nevertheless, DC, please play the music. Now, the reason I wanted to do this um, is because I've been watching, as I said off the top, Surrey played knots this week and um, cap number... Uh, 323 for England is a really interesting story that, Jeff, you're going to find uh, fascinating, I suspect. Okay. Uh, a chap by the name of Harold Butler, dusty old bastard. Um, there's also Harold Butler, who in America founded the restaurant Denny's, which I'm sure you've been to when on the road in the States. <laughs> I have been uh, to Denny's, uh, Jeff, yeah. <laughs> uh, Yes, I, I remember going to Denny's after my high school prom in the States back in 2002. There you go. Um, yeah, but our particular Harold Butler uh, was born in 1913 in Clifton in Knotts. And he rocks up to professional ranks just as Larwood and Vos are coming towards the end of their fantastic careers. Of course, Larwood and Vos won the championship for Knotts in 1929, and we all know what they did in Australia in, in 32-33. So there's a bit of an expectation management issue for our man, Harold, just to state this uh, in the first um, exchanges about him. Right. He's, um, he's, in, a, so, he's in a Dan Cullen, Xavier Doherty sort of area. Exactly. And he, and he rocks up you know, in 33, which is... Straight after the Ashes win and, and so on. Um, but, you know, they're, they're still there coming towards the end of their career. But he's more like Vos rather than Larwood. He's more seam and accuracy. I suppose you could call him in, in the 2023 context, the Scotty Bowen to the Mark Wood of, of Harold Larwood, if you wanted to cross-pollinate across the two teams. Anyway, so in 1933, Harold takes a Pfeiffer on uh, professional debut or on first-class debut, but it takes him until 1937 until he's a, a permanent fixture of the side. And it kind of shows how strong Knotts were before the war, just before the war. Um, he, he's taking consistent wickets, an average of 23, an average of 21, an average of 24 in the three following years, but can't really bed down a spot. Uh, but then he does. In 1938, um, he takes 39 wickets at 16. Then in 37, so two years before the war, it's against Surrey um, that he, I don't, I'm not sure if it was here or Trent Bridge, Let's just say it was here. He takes eight for 15, his career best figures. And it's dreadful timing for him, right? So in 1939, the the last year of cricket before the war and and five years off, he takes 105 wickets at 23 and he's flying. He's the main seamer for knots. Um, He's found his place in the professional game and then there's no more game to be played and he joins the services like most or like many cricketers did. Um, when the war began. He played a few games for the services, 11 in 1943 and 1944, where he was stationed in India. Um, But it wasn't really until 1946 where he gets back playing consistently in England afterwards. And he's a star in that year, uh, making... 
taking 89 wickets at, at 22 in 1946. But they didn't think he had the right kind of body type for Australia. They, they, the perception was, according to a biography of his I was reading, um, that his, that he was, um, he was, uh, he was able to hit the right spot. He was able to um, do what he needed to do, but he, he didn't have that kind of oomph about him mm. that would have made him successful in Australia on, on less forgiving surfaces, I suppose. So he doesn't make the trip in 1946-47. He does, however, take a truckload of wickets in the early part of um, the summer of 47, and he's given a test match at Leeds against South Africa. He gets his debut. He gets his cap. 323 Harold Butler, which is where we were last week at Headingley. And it's a brilliant one. It's a brilliant debut. At age 34, I mentioned Scott Boland before. This is Boland-esque. Match figures, 52 overs, 24 maidens, 7 for 66. Now, Boland took about that on his test debut, albeit with 6 for 9 in the second innings. But, you know, they're roughly the same uh, figures, having debuted at the same age, having been overlooked for similar reasons and, and so on. That includes Bruce Mitchell and Dudley Norse. And this is where I notice a bit of a theme. He bowls both of them in his first innings in test cricket. He goes through the middle order. In the second innings, he, he, he gets Norse leg before wicket for a second time. In his first test, so seven for 66, five of them are bowled or leg before, mm. which I think is a sign of the kind of bowler that he was. Ten wicket win, happy days for England. Uh, Wisden in their report of the game said, Butler impressed as the best England opening bowler used so far in the test matches. Apart from his analysis, he was unlucky in seeing Norse and Mann dis- missed in the slips. So, you know, he was creating chances the whole way through. Uh, and, you know, having missed six years in the middle of his career through his late 20s and early 30s, which is typically, the, you know, the best years for a, for a fast bowler. That, that would have been pretty special. Sadly, he was injured for the Oval Test match. Uh, but what he did at Leeds was enough to get him picked for the West Indies on that winter tour. Um, his overall numbers in 1947, by the way, 106 wickets at 22, his best season to date. But in the Windies, he gets malaria. He's really crook. He loses a stone Oof. and a half. I'm not quite sure what that works out to be in, in new money. Maybe about... 10 or 11 kilos, something I think a stone's... Like it's about eight. Yeah. Is it 14 pounds or something? Is a stone maybe? Yeah. I mean, a Absolute stone and a half. Absolute measurement, getting... by the way. Sort your, sort, yeah. sort your lives out, England. <laughs> Remember it was a promise from Boris Johnson to bring back pounds and ounces and all that kind of thing at the election <laughs> in 2019. To think that... Bl- anyway. Um, but he gets picked for Port of Spain anyway. He gets picked for Port of Spain regardless, having been so crook. They, they get him in the side. And he takes three for a twofer. Five more wickets. So he's got 12 after two test matches. And he keeps hitting those bloody stumps. Knocks over Everton Weeks, bowled for 36. All three of his wickets in the first innings were bowled. And one of them in the second dig. So 12 wickets in two test matches. Nine out of 12 bowled or leg before, which I reckon's got to be some sort of 20th century record mm. to have three quarters of your wickets bowled or leg before. I mean... It's like he was bowing to Johnny Bairstow the whole time. Um, but, and here's the, here's the thing, right? 12 wickets at 17.9. He's done everything right. Just when they're scrapping around for a partner to bowl with Alec Bedser, and he never plays again. They never pick him for England again. Wow. An extraordinary start to his career, and he's two and done. Um, I mean, he kept playing until 1954. He was 41 upon his retirement. Super consistent all the way. Um, you know, he takes 95 wickets at 22 in 1950, 75 at 25 in 1952, all up 952 wickets at 24, mm-hmm. having missed those prime years due to World War II. And, and most of those in a, 
in a tough era for knots after the war when the pitch was rubbish. This is another sort of subplot of his story. Um, all around the country, the pitches were spicier after the war, but Trent Bridge was flat as attack, and that reflected not sort of going down the table in that period of time. Um, but yeah, for reasons unknown, never picked again, but he did have cap number 323. Tremendous debut, well-earned, huge career. Harold Butler um, deserved to play more. And um, as it... You know, you, you were talking before about, um, you know, a selector who'd never played and all the rest of it. it, it when, when going through Harold's story, it did remind me a little bit of Tony Dottermade, who we were speaking to on Saturday night, Jeff, who's a selector for Australia at the moment. And, you know, his journey, having played, um, you know, four test matches against four different nations to start his career, having to wait four years to get another crack and, and getting that in Sri Lanka mm. and having this, like, on paper, really impressive record and, and having perhaps not been as fulfilled as he otherwise might be. Uh, we'll, we'll say what it is for Harold Butler, um, who who did a lot right in his interrupted career. A proper dusty old bastard. I think that suits that 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 fits every qualification. I also liked how you um just uh, subconsciously upgraded Scott Boland's figures to six for nine. Nice. For what was it? Six for seven, wasn't it? What what what? Six for seven. Yeah. Sorry, I, in my head I thought he got hit for a boundary at the end. He had six for five, didn't he? Then he then he got hit uh, for a two, I reckon, by Anderson. Hit for a two through the cordon. Yeah. Something oh like well, that. there you go. Six for seven. But what did he take in the first dig? About one for fifty. One for forty-eight, maybe from memory. But one for forty-eight. Like so that's that. pretty close to yeah. yeah. If you if you combine the innings, the match figures are nigh on identical. Mm. But Scotty Bowen gets to play ten Test matches and. My mate Harold here only played the two. Yeah. It's not right. It's not right. It's not Big fair. Big wickets too. Selection, well, yes. Um, selection is not fair. And it's a, a thing that anybody who follows this game knows. Right, we've got Gary Murphy up next. This is a first-time pledger. It's coming in in Euros. It's 360. 360 degrees. Now, it comes with this. It's either a joke or a clue. Gary says, an Englishman, an Irishman, and a South African walk into a bar. After two days of drinking... One retires to the hall as the other raises his cup. Okay, so let me let me take you through a thought process here, Adam. Um, an Englishman, an Irishman, and a South African. I thought, where would you find all of those in the England cricket team? There would have been periods where there, there were all three. Well, I mean, yes. they're not even saying that to be facetious, but but that is a that, yeah, that is yeah. a, a, an observable fact. Um, and I thought about the 2019 World Cup winning team first of all because you've got Owen Morgan there you've got Jason Roy there um, so you've you've got an, an Irishman who's also an Englishman a South African who's also an Englishman um, and then whoever you pick for your third option to fill the, the Englishman category you've got a lot of you, you've got you've got ones you've got players that fit all of these different if you double them up right like what if what if one person is both of these categories so morgan ed joyce boyd rankin they're all irishmen and englishmen um jonathan trott kevin mm -hmm. peterson i mean umpteen others keaton jennings and so on south africans who are englishmen uh curtis Campher, south african who's irish uh, as well yep. so there are different options there my gut said this is going to be about owen morgan and Given So the clue says, after two days of drinking, one retires to the hall as the other raises the cup. So I thought, well, maybe they were drinking for two days after the World Cup final. It's possible. Um, and, and then I was thinking, well, okay, if I've got Morgan and I've got Roy as a South African, who else is significant in that game? Who retired after that game? Liam Plunkett retired after that World Cup final. So I've got a retirement. I've got the cup. And two days... Well, here's another bit. New Zealand took two days in the semi-final to reach the final. I did. So I've got two days, but that doesn't entirely link, but it almost does. 
I've got Plunkett who retires. I've got the Irish connection, the South African connection, Morgan raising the cup. One retires to the hall as the other raises his cup. What did Liam Plunkett do when he retired? He moved America to Philadelphia. Um, hall of Independence. No, that's not right. Well, you can't spell Philadelphia without H-A-L-L. Those are all letters in Philadelphia. Mm. Just, just a thought. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, probably not, but that's okay. It, it has continue. two L's, an H and an A. <laughs> I'm just saying it contains the word. Okay. Um, 360, then I was like, the number's 360. What could be 360? Plunkett's the most significant bowler in the final. He, he takes three for 42. What else have we got? Our number's 360. Liam Plunkett bowled 36 dot balls in that final. 36 uh, zeros. Yes. So I'm like, I'm thinking this is pretty good, right? Like this is, it's, it's a bit tenuous, but I've got it. I've got it. It's a, maybe a bullshit answer, but it's a good enough bullshit answer. Um, but I took this to our Nerd Pledge CSI group um, who've been helping us put this together because we're flat out at the moment and said, how about this as an answer? And they said, that's a bullshit answer. <laughs> so we kept looking at it. And, and a little further down the road, this is, this is what comes up. Owen Morgan is still involved. Find someone else who he played with. Andre Berta was a South African teenager when he moved to Ireland to build a cricket career playing local club cricket in Ireland. Strong, all-rounder, bold, medium pace, battered, middle order. Played his first one-day international in 2006 and he played in the next two World Cups for Ireland in 07 and 2011. Now, he, he actually started playing for Ireland years before that. He, he started in, in 2001 um, but didn't get to play a proper one-day international with given the status nonsense until 2006. He's very significant in the 2007 World Cup. He takes one for 32 off his 10 overs in the tie with Zimbabwe. He takes two wickets for five runs off eight overs in the Pakistan win. Interesting. Bloody uh, hell. That's match winner stuff. Yes, or match something else stuff maybe. Um, and he takes w- <laughs> one for 31 off eight overs against Bangladesh when they beat Bangladesh. So he's, he's important with the ball in, in all of the results that they get. He's been playing List A cricket for Ireland since 2001, including when Ireland played in the English, in the county domestic cups as that Mm -hmm. that Irish team. And he plays first-class cricket for Ireland for the first time in 2004 in the Intercontinental Cup, which is a competition we've talked about a bit in the last few months. So just before that World Cup in 2007, a month before that World Cup, he has his biggest moment. He's in Abu Dhabi. He's playing the Intercontinental Cup against the UAE. And he comes out to the middle to bat with Owen Morgan. Morgan makes 209 not out, his highest first-class score. And Johan Berta makes 157. Their partnership is an Irish national record. It is 360 runs that they put on, which is our nerd pledge number. And where does it relate to the other parts of the clue? Well, so Berta retires just after the 2011 World Cup. Morgan carries on with England and lifts the World Cup in 2019. And a few months ago, earlier this year, just before this pledge came in from a first-time pledger, inducted into the Irish Cricket Hall of Fame, Johan ah. Bertha, in 2023. Played 141 times for Ireland. He has retired to the hall and Owen Morgan has lifted the cup after their 360 partnership. That takes some finding. Well done to the... Um 
uh, to Nerd Pledge CSI. Well done to you, Jeff. Thank you to Gary Murphy. 360 for you and a good story as well. Uh, my second number is from Jonathan Brand. Now, it's 225 GBP this time. The clue reads, not a Yorkshireman. Now, his previous two answers that we've given all the previous two answers we've done for Jonathan have both been Yorkshiremen. So, um, I'm, you know, we're, we're going to go further afield. I'm not sure if that yeah. means he's like a rival of Yorkshire or he's just trying to steer us towards, I don't know, like Lanks or something like that. But mm. um, I, I've just I've just taken it on face value and, and left it at that, not a Yorkshireman. So there are loads of 225s, as you'd probably imagine. Uh, Brendan McCullum, I'll just run through a few of them for you, Jeff. Brendan McCullum's got a Test 225 against India in 2010-11. Ed Cowan, bless him. Uh, has a first-class 225 against South Australia at Bell Reeve in 2009-2010. Bumble's son, Graham Lloyd, got one versus Yorkshire in 1997 for Lancashire. He's an umpire these days at the top level. Um, Bob Simpson and Ashes 225 at Adelaide in, in 65-66. Bradman, of course, um, got a 225 also at Adelaide um, in 38-39 against Queensland. Make it two. Bradman, as a youngster, got one for the Woodfull 11 against the Ryder 11 at the SCG. Um, Wally Hammond got a 225 for the MCC against New South Wales. That's not all he uh, got. At the SCG, indeed. Not long after that, too. 28-29, it was his cock issues a couple of years before that, Hammond. Um, ben Slater, who I called the dismissal of um, a couple of days ago, um, got one last year at Chestiller Street for Knotts. Um, Barry Richards, keeping that, that Knotts theme, got one at Trent Bridge for Hampshire. Um, but let's park all the 225s because it gets better than this. Um, it, it might very well be that this is in relation to Harold Larwood, whose cap number was 225. Again, Knotts connection, oh. not a Yorkshireman. I was tempted to go that way, given as a strong Knotts theme today for me on the show. But we have told the Larwood story fairly exhaustively multiple times. I thought it would be a bit cute to go back to an old answer and, and reheat it. So we'll, we'll put the great H. Larwood to one side. Instead, again, because I'm at the Oval, let's talk about Peter Loder. We've never done Peter Loder properly on the podcast before, and we deserve to. Um, a similar kind of career in a way to Harold Butler, who I discussed earlier in the show, um, in that he had a superb record, Peter Loder. And, you know, we're at Surrey. We're at, uh, we're at, we're at the Oval, which was his home ground in a very famous, um, very famous era. Uh, now, you know, with Harold Butler, it was the post-Larwood-Vos problem that he had from expectation perspective. Uh, for Loder, he, he's right there in the same window as Statham and Truman and Tyson, which mm. means it's a bit of a logjam and informs why he only played 13 test matches. But let's go back to the start. So he was a Surrey lad through and through, Peter Loder, um, and uh, walked into a dominant dressing room where Surrey won famously seven championships on the trot between 1952 and, and 1958 a staggering side um, in, for Loder's part for most of that he was opening the bowling with Alec Bedser then they had Locke and Laker to follow to clean up and, and do as they did he, he was tall slender had a long run up he was accurate he was resilient uh, and he gets an England debut uh, on on the back of a, a big season in 1954 at the Oval, his home ground against Pakistan, um, the first of those 13 test appearances. Um, it came the year after he took nine for 23 against Kent, which kind of elevated him in, in the public consciousness, I suppose. Right. It's, yeah, a nine for playing for Surrey will do that. Um, he went to Australia in 54-55 as a tourist, but didn't play in the test matches. And after a couple of further test in 55 back at home. He, he was on the outer for two years until 1957 in South Africa where he gets back into the test side. But it's the next home summer 
in 57, where he makes his biggest impression and his lasting legacy, really, in Test cricket. Up at Headingley again, uh, where um, Butler made his debut against the West Indies. Uh, Peter Loder takes six for 36. Uh, his first and only Fifer, but he made it a special one. The first hat-trick after World War Two in huh. Test cricket. The 12th in Tests all up. Uh, he bowled Roy Gilchrist to, to finish off the West Indies innings and bowl them out, I think, from memory, for 136 in the first innings. Interestingly, it was the longest gap between hat-tricks. So um, Tom Goddard took one in 1938. So it was a 19-year gap uh, to Leeds in, in 1957. Of course, acknowledging there was no Test cricket for six years in, in the middle of all of that. But it was also 38 years until there'd be another England hat-trick, Dominic Cork in 1995. So... Uh, for the longest time, he was the answer to the quiz question, who took England's last hat-trick? Well, it was Peter Loder at Leeds against the Windies in 1957. Um, there was no winter tour for England in 57-58. Um, well, not one that he went on anyway, um, but he was in the attack in the summer of 58 against New Zealand, got on the Ashes tour in 58-59, um, and he had a hell of a tour. Um, he, missed, he had to pull out of one game with heat stroke. In another game, he snapped his Achilles, uh, and somehow made it onto the field for the first test match at the Gabba and took a forfer to get um, England moving in the right direction. He played at the MCG as well later in the series, but got a groin strain. And his tour actually finished getting into a, a car accident with Brian Statham. I don't know any of the details, but was, I saw a reference to the fact that it ended poorly, having been in a car crash. Wow. I guess the cars wouldn't have been too safe in, in 58, 59. Jesus so Christ. he might have been it's like lucky rolling to get out of that. barrel down a hill. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he never played for England again after that Ashes tour. Always a bit of a drama about his bouncer. Now, this is the era, unfortunately, um, and we know from the Ian Meckiff story that the Ashes of 58-59 are when um, people are watching it on television for the first time. Mm. Um, there, there's coverage in Australia of that Ashes series, and that's where Meckiff dominates England, um, taking that 6 and bowling really quickly at Melbourne. And... You know, there, there are any number of people talking about the validity of bowling actions in a way that wasn't really happening before. And, and there was a, a perception that, uh, to use the, 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 use the jargon of the time, that, that Loder had a kink in his action when he bowled his short ball, which mm. probably didn't help in terms of selection when England had already made a call on Tony Locke for that reason and, and so on. Um, and, of course, Meckiff gets no-balled out of the game a couple of years on. But, yeah, he keeps playing Loder, um, takes bulk wickets in, you know, has 100 wicket seasons in 1961, takes 131 wickets at 18 in 1962, but can't force his way back into the test side. That's his best return um, since 57 when he was at the peak of his England powers and, and taking the hat-trick and, and all the rest of it. He played one more year in 1963, and then he decided to move to Australia. Now, here's a nice little twist. He played one more first-class game, and that was for WA huh. as soon as he arrived. He played the first game of the season for Western Australia against Queensland at the Gabba. Now, it's a rainy draw um, at, up in Brisbane. Um, the Queensland make 548 for three declared uh, with Peter Burge making a double ton and Sam Tribble also reaching three figures. But yeah, Peter Loder um, at his new club or new state, if you like, took none for 85 from 19. A fair bit different than the last time he was at the Gabba for a test match five years earlier, I suppose. But um, yeah, on face value, it appears as though he made his mind up then at age 35 to, to retire from uh, cricket full time. So a fabulous first class career. How's this? 1,326 wickets at 19. And wow. all of those Surrey titles in their glory era. An average of 19. It's a really big sample size. And then uh, for the purpose of our nerd pleasure, who I remind you uh, is Jonathan Brand, uh, Peter Loder in his 13 test matches took 39 wickets at 22.5. 
225 being our new pledge number in those 13 tests. He stayed in the game as an umpire in WA for a really long time. And how's this? His last, I guess his last um, connection with top flight cricket was in 2006, where he was the umpire for the Lilac Hill England versus Australia game, which was at the time the, the traditional air quotes, you know, tour opener, a little bit like the Duke of Norfolk's 11, but yeah. it was a... Um, it was a, an Australian eleven playing England in a 50-over game. Australia won comfortably in a sign of things to come in 06, 07. Australia um, beat them up a little bit. Some pretty interesting names in, in that team, by the way. Chris Rogers, Marcus North. Um, it was Luke Ronke who right. hit like a, a 50 ball 80 or something like that. He went on to play for both Australia and New Zealand in, in the World Cup of 15 and, and so on. But yes, yeah, so Peter Loder was the umpire as a 75-year-old in that game. Huh. Anyway, he finished up as an umpire the year after and, and passed away in WA in 2011. Uh, a Surrey great, uh, the man who broke the hat-trick drought, uh, Peter Loder. For two two five. When, when you mention Lilac Hill, the first thing that always comes to mind is Dennis Lilly taking the catch off his son's bowling, the one-hander yes. at, at uh, mid-off or mid-on. Is it the other way around? It was at fi- it wasn't at the Sun at fine leg taking it off DK. There might have been that might I've have also happened. It was... But Lilly definitely yeah, takes yeah. Dennis definitely takes a catch a one-hander above his right. head. I remember I remember seeing that. That was Lilly's. That was when Lilly was fifty. Yeah. It was his final game of serious cricket against Pakistan at, as a fifty-year-old, and he still took three for. Yeah. Um, and it was on telly and it was on like, remember the early days of Optus covering cricket? Yeah. You know, Dennis Lilly opening the bowling with his son. Yeah, special stuff. Yeah. Good childhood memory. Uh, very good stuff on uh, Mr. Loader. I hope that his nickname was Front End during his career. And as, so what's the go? So if, you, so if they think you've got a dodgy action, you can't play for England, but you're fine to play first class cricket for 20 years. Well, the thing with Locke was they got a bit worried, didn't they? Um, they got a bit worried about his action. And, and you know, Mecca... It, it, it was the time, yeah. right, Colleague and all the rest. It, 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 was, it was the time when this was an ongoing part of the conversation. Bradman's involved. Yeah, but I'm wondering um, why it's okay to play it at first-class level. Oh, right, right, right. No, no, it was the scrutiny of the TV cameras right. it was the thing. It, it, we, we, we did it in Calling the Shots. We went through this mm. as like TV cameras being there and the, and the elevated interest in bowling actions right. and slow-mo replays, not, not as we know them today, but slowing down actions on tape. Um, led to all sorts of um, scrutiny that wasn't there before. I see. All right, we've got one more new number. It is Stu G, and it is $2.48 in uh, Australian dollary dues. And he has a clue for you. Love the show. Finally paying some dues. Great to have you, Stu. Uh, My 248 is from a game I witnessed as a teenage boy with his dad at the cricket. As a fan of an underdog team far from home on the night, it was a game featuring lots of great era local names, great era local names, great local era names, something like that, that made for a hell of a spectacle. There we go. Okay, so thoughts on this initially. Currency is AUD, which means location, probably Australia. On the night means it has to be a limited overs game. Um, yep. And I'm guessing given I mean, general ages of people who enjoy this show probably a one-day international rather than a t20 could be a domestic night game as well i haven't ruled that out but there was there was an answer that's good enough and clear enough and close enough that i think it's got a good chance of being this um there have only been two odis in australia featuring the score of 248 both of them involve mm-hmm. new zealand at the mcg so that does make me wonder because he says far from home new zealand playing in australia is not that far from home but i guess they're still not at home. Um, hell of a spectacle featuring great local names that all of that fits the other Michael Bevan game 
Um, not yep. not the West Indies last ball four game, but the one at the MCG. On a night in was it two thousand and two? Maybe um, I was also early. There. Yeah, it was. It was early. To, I was in America at the time, following it on the uh, on a. I guess it would have been the ABC radio stream if they were doing that. That, that then they probably were releasing it online. So, or maybe I was following it through Crick Info. Either way, I, it was definitely early two thousand and two. Yep. Um. So so it's New Zealand um, with a bit of a future sports betting enthusiasm in their ranks. Um. Lou Vincent's opening the bowling. <laughs> Chris, Chris Cairns makes 50, so opening the batting, not the bowling. Chris Cairns makes 55 in the middle order. Um, they make 245 for eight. They get a half century from Stephen Fleming as well. One of those sort of mid-range ODI scores, which you think that Australian team should chase, but they're having trouble with New Zealand in that tri-series. They are, yeah. And Shane Bond comes out and he picks up Adam Gilchrist and Ricky Ponting quickly. Um, Dion Nash, smoking the rope, um, gets rid of Mark and Steve Warb. Both Damian Martin's out to Andre Adams. Bond comes back and gets rid of the freak, Ian Harvey. So they're six down for 82 after 21 and a half overs. Australia, they've got 171 balls to make 164 runs with four wickets in hand. Shouldn't be possible. Michael Bevan stays chilled. Um, just keeps working the bowling, doesn't do anything extravagant, keeps talking to his lower order partners. You know, keeping them focused on the job in hand. So by the time mm. Shane Warne gets out, they put on 61. By the time Brett Lee gets out, they put on 81. And Bevan is just masterful in the pacing of this innings. He hits seven boundaries all night. Seven boundaries in the innings. Three of them come in one over from Chris Harris um, around about the 39th or 40th when Harris is well into the spell. Bevan's worked out the pace. He's decided that he's happy to, to go against him. Um, it's half of his boundaries basically in that one over. So they need 22 more when Brett Lee gets out. Andy Bickles come out to bat. Glenn McGrath's the only one to come. So basically if a wicket falls, Australia are pretty likely to lose the game. Bevan, what does he do after the fall of this wicket? He scores five twos in and over. Five twos off five balls. Um, placing them all around the field. I remember this vividly watching this from the stands um, and just delirious with, with how, how well this placement and this timing uh, was going. Brings up his ton. Bickles on strike for the next over. Carves away a couple of boundaries. I think it's through backward point, I reckon. I remember one of them flying away. To bring up the win... So Michael Bevan, remembering he's hit seven fours in the night, 102 not out from 95 balls. He's gone at better than a runner ball with barely a boundary. He scored 17 twos in that innings. Yes, I went back and counted them. Um, and they win <laughs> yeah. with three balls to spare. And I remember, like, just due to the impossibility of it, I was so elated. I remember hugging strangers in the stands at the MCG, everybody jumping up and down, um, chanting the name of, of the great the great ODI run chaser, um, another triumph, 102 not out for Michael Bevan. When Australia reached 248, they only needed 246 to win, but Bickle hits a four to take them to 248. And I think that might be the answer for Stu G. A theory. Uh, I don't think Bevan's uh, stocks were ever higher than this. Yeah. I reckon this is the moment where he was just just known as the banker Australia had down the list. Yeah, this is a few years on from the New Year's Day miracle in 1996. He's a different kind of player. He's had um, a couple of test careers that have started and stopped um, since then. Uh, and he was back to being just a one-day player. 
Um, this was the, the season he absolutely dominated the Sheffield Shield, or it might have been 2000, 2001. Either way, he, he's playing his best cricket. Um, he should have gone to India <laughs> in 2001 um, for that test tour, the Border Gavaskar. He should have batted at six and been an extra spin option, given he was just dominating um, slow bowling as he did in this game. Um, I reckon by the 2003 World Cup, people started getting a bit tetchy about strike rates. And Bevan was never going to be the kind of player who batted at a strike rate. I mean, I know he did on this night, but he was never going to consistently, especially when batting first, um, be the kind of guy that went at 120 or whatever it was. And the game was changing a little bit by 2003. Um, but yeah, what a career. You know, winning the World Cup a couple of times. Could have done so again in 2007 had he played the whole way through, but he'd retired just before, if I recall correctly. And um yeah, that, those those special nights when the one-day Tri-Series meant still quite a bit. This is probably the last Tri-Series that meant a bit, I reckon, Jeff. The last one where people were fully plugged in and clued in. Well, because um, Australia don't make the final and people absolutely lose it. Steve Waugh oh, right. loses they, the captaincy that, over it. Yeah, no, that that's right. That's why people are especially plugged in. Mark Waugh and Steve Waugh. Mark Waugh's drops yeah. before it and Steve Waugh's drop. Mark, Mark was playing in this match, so it's, uh, it must be it must be after must or be during end of the yeah. series. Yeah, so so yeah, they get rid of both War Brothers and they reboot under Ricky Ponting. Mm-hmm. It leads into two thousand and three, and and so the dynasty goes. Yeah, so uh, those are the new numbers. If you want to send us a number, go to patreon.com slash the final word. That can uh, that's the thing that helps us keep doing what we're doing. Uh, Jeff, I think we've actually, for once, I know I always say we've got a relatively short show today and we speak for an hour and 20 minutes, but uh, this is my natural jumping off point. So we'll have lots of revisits to get to um, on the next edition of Storytime. You just have to bear with us when we are doing the best we can with um, with placing story times at the moment. As everybody knows who listens, they're, they're harder to prepare than the average episode of The Final Word. And we've got a three-day break between Old Trafford and uh, and the Oval where we're meant to do about 17 interviews. So I want to believe we'll get one in there somewhere and we'll be co-located at least and you won't be um, as, as transient as you are at the moment covering the women's ashes by that point. But um, yeah, this might be the first ever story time to go under 60 minutes. I think we're at 55 right now. I reckon we've had one. I think we had one that was about a 58 or something <laughs> once. Um, yeah, so so this we've done very well today. I've got to jump off and um, call the first ball of the, the Surrey game in about 10 minutes, which is why we're not going to do any revisits today. However, uh, if you like what we do on this podcast, and I hope you do, um, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Not only um, can you be a financial supporter of the eight days a week podcast that is the final word, um, you also get access to cheaper tickets to our live show with Stephen Fear, who's a great guest. He's a fun gregarious sweary guest he'll he'll make it worth your while um in soho at the phoenix on the 26th of july um all of those details all those ticket details are in the show notes and if you become a patron um you'll get a message from jeff which tells you how you can get your tickets at half price Mm -hmm. am i missing anything no no i think that's it um and you get to jump online with our very friendly online community who are hanging out watching the cricket even more than we're hanging out watching the cricket um they're 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 covering everything right this has been story time the final word jeff lemon adam collins we'll see you very soon sorry if i ran out to empty this so you know what i meant i had to go about it